Good morning. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. Ronnie fussed at some people last week. Now he's got a full choir loft. Look at that. Two or three slots empty, that's all. So, but we're glad to see all of you. Thank you're here. Thankful that you're here. Why don't you stand up and move around and greet some folks? We are very glad you're here today. Hello. All right, you can be seated. We are very glad that you're here today. If you'll notice in your worship guide, the um, Annie Armstrong week of prayer is beginning, and so it's time for us to begin to turn our attention toward that. Um, just remember that our goal is $50,000 for the Annie Armstrong offering. Last year, we gave as much as I think we've ever given as a church to Annie Armstrong, so thank you for the way you support it, but I encourage you to continue to do that this year. Also, you'll notice a couple of announcements. Men, um, there's an event tonight from 5 to 7 over at Petros. You don't have to register to be a part of it. The main thing about registering was making sure we had enough people making chili. So we hope that you'll be there at 5 o'clock and, and be a part. You can see some information there. And then I was asked on the very back, there's a QR code. There's two QR codes. We're getting QR code um, happy in this church, it looks like. But the first one up here, if you're a guest and you scan that, you can fill out some information about our church, um, for our church, if you want more information, and we'd be happy to send it to you. So that's there for you. Are you ready to worship today? All right. Let's pray, and then I think, Ronnie, how do you got it today? You usually try to trick me a little bit. All right. Let's do the call to worship first, and then we'll pray. Would you join me? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray together. Would you join me? Father, as your bride, we come before you, and we want to make ourselves ready to worship you, knowing that we need you to do it. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come today. We know that you're here. We just pray that you would manifest yourself to us today, that we would feel your power, and that you would change us in the ways that we need to be changed. Lord, there are many things on our mind as we come into this room. I pray just for a little while, you let us turn our attention toward you and worship you who are seated on the throne. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. morning. Our reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 6 verses 5 through 15. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And they came to the threshing floor of Nacom, also put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Ursa, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzza, and that place was called Perez Uzza to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had 
gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. This is the word of God. Stand and join our voices as we sing hymn number 11, All Creatures of Our God and King.
we sing, Keep Me. I think uh, it's, it's a prayer that Caleb Collins and Sue Smith wrote. Uh, just to pray along as we sing this song. Everyone's finding a seat. Why don't you turn your Bibles to the book of James? Um, before we read, 
look at it. We're going to pray, but uh, we start a new series today in the book of James, and I've been looking forward to this for a while. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I pray that um, as we sang and heard the choir sing, that you would keep us hungry for you, that we would stay thirsty. Lord, just sought us through your word. Show us your glory and those glimpses that we get that we, would, that we would hunger for you, that we would thirst for you, that we would desire you above all things. I know that many are here today with burdens. And as they come to you with those burdens, Father, and sometimes they can be overwhelming. Help us to remember that you're an omnipotent God. You can do all things. And you're strong enough to carry the burden and to carry us. So help us to keep laying it back with you and trusting you. Lord, I pray that you'd teach us to trust you. You know the great needs and we give them to you. You also know the great causes of joy that we have. We know that every good and perfect gift is from you, so we praise you. And Father, as we, as we pause just for a moment, we, we lift up our world to you. God, I just pray for our missionaries spread across the world, that you would bless them. But as today we set aside a time to pray for our North American missionaries, Lord, we pray for them, a, a country like ours and Obviously, Canada and other areas involved as well, but a country like ours that has been so blessed and seen awakenings and revivals, and yet statistically, we have almost the highest number of lost people in the world. We lift up our missionaries here and our churches here, and we pray, God, for revival. Revive us. Revive us, Lord and awaken our land. We pray for our leaders, those in the government, but also most especially those in the church. Help us to be the holy men and women you've called us to be. Bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, we're just going to look at verse 1, but I do want to read um, 1 through 4. I don't know that all four, three, all four verses will be on the screen, probably just verse 1. But if you're able, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let its steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said earlier, I've been looking forward to this study. I, I taught James if. If you are a date writer in your Bible, back in 2006, I taught it on Wednesday nights. And, uh, but I don't think I've ever preached through it. I was looking back, even in the earlier two, other two churches that I was able to pastor, be the first time I've preached through it. It's an amazing book. It's, it's one of those that many people speak of as their favorites. Um, I know that there are other books that we would all have as our favorite, but James always seems to be one of those books that that comes up as a favorite. It's an amazing book, and, and I think it'll help us grow in the things of God. Most likely, just to give you an idea, we'll probably be in this till about October, and, and we're just going to take our time and try to learn and, and remember James's famous words in chapter 1, verse 22. Not just to learn, but he says, be, be, I, I grew up, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. We we don't just want to hear it. We want to do it. We want to practice it and put it into to practice and application. And, and we're going to see this is a book that's full of application. And so let's just do two things this morning. The first thing is let's have a word about the letter itself and, and just kind of introduce the letter. And, and, and so 
I want to just use the five W's of study, okay? They won't be in the order that we're usually used to seeing them, but, but who wrote it? Well, obviously James, but which James? There are really five different Jameses, and there are others, but five different Jameses in, in, in the New Testament that, are, that, that stand out. First, you have James, the, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. There you find it in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So there was a James who was the father of, of a disciple, and obviously um, we understand why there's a differentiation between Judas, this Judas, and Judas the, the traitor. But then second, you have a James who is often called James the Younger in, in commentaries and other writings. You find him with his mother Mary. Um, now look at chapter 24, verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So that's the second James that we have. His, his mother was Mary. And then you have two sons, of, or two Jameses, that you find back in the list of disciples. You have James, the son of Alphaeus. He was one of the twelve. And James, the son of Zebedee who was the brother of John. Both of those are in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. So you, you've got these different Jameses, and, and then finally you have James, the brother of Jesus. They shared the same mother, Mary. Obviously, Jesus was born of a virgin, so they did not share the same father, but, but his mother and father were Joseph and Mary. You see it in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, where they said, Is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James, this is James, and, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us today? And they took offense at him. Now, of those five Jameses that people would say may be the author of this book, three of them we know nothing about whatsoever. Okay? Now, we know that their names, we know what they were, but there's nothing else written about them after the New Testament and after this mention. So, it really brings you down to two different Jameses. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who was one of the famous, the, one of the sons of thunder. He was one of those men. And, and he was a, a leader in, in the apostles and, and a leader among the early church. And, 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 and he's one that would be a likely candidate, except that he was martyred. Um, the first of the disciples, other than Judas who took his own life, the first of the disciples. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he was put to death. You see it there. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on, on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And then he goes on to try to get Peter. And you remember, Peter's put in prison. The church prays for him, and he's released. And so that happened in the very early 40s, the early 40s. So most likely, this James, James, the son of Zebedee, died too early to have written this book. Even those, we'll see, this book was written not long after he was put to death. And so who is it that wrote the book? I think it's James, the brother of Jesus. The one who's mentioned in Mark, who is the son of Mary and Joseph. He's the half-brother of Jesus, as I said. Same mother, not the same father. And what we see in Mark's gospel is is that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. And the only reason I know that is because he said sisters, plural. So he had at least two sisters. That kind of goes against what, I, I'm not trying to pick on them, but what the Catholic Church teaches in terms of that Mary be, remained a, a virgin after the birth of Jesus. She had a natural union with Joseph, and these children were born. And, and so Jesus had brothers, and, and, and two of them wrote books in the New Testament. This James, and then we've already studied the book of Jude. Obviously, we understand why he did not go by Judas later in his life. He was a brother of Jesus, Jude. They were not always followers of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 7, they mocked Jesus and tell him to go on up to Jerusalem. And he said... For not, later in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So this time, early on, even the brothers of Jesus um, didn't believe in him. Um, 
they, they didn't want the teachings of Jesus any more than that baby wants my preaching right now, right? It's, uh, but that's all right. I'm glad he's here. Um, we know from Mark's gospel that Mary and Jesus' brothers came to get Jesus while he was teaching. And Mark says something interesting. He says, for they thought he was out of his mind. They didn't understand Jesus. He had been the older brother. Joseph died sometime in, in that process because he's not mentioned again. And, and Jesus probably took on the role as the older brother. And, and, and remember, and, and Mark says, is this not the carpenter? He took on the role of his father's carpenter shop up until the time he entered into the ministry. And, and so now he's teaching. And John chapter 19, though, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, it's interesting. Jesus has four brothers. But while he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at Mary, and what does he do? To, he gives her to John, the son of Zebedee. Why not his brothers? Four brothers. Why not leave Mary entrusted to the four brothers? Because they weren't believers yet. And Mary, as a believer, had more in common with John, the disciple, than she did with a lost son. It says a lot about the relationships that we have as the church and the relationship we should have. But as we'll see in just a few weeks, the resurrection changes everything. Amen? Changes everything. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus' brothers are with Mary and the disciples in the upper room. See that? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They're in the upper room. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and look at that, and his brothers. Resurrection changes everything. Changes everything. They didn't believe in Jesus in his ministry, but now he's dead and he's risen from the dead. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul speaks of the people that, that Jesus specifically appeared to. And, and he appeared to Peter and the 12. And, and then he appeared in verse 5 to more than 500. In verse 6, more than 500. And then he said, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus appeared specifically, I'll get that word out in a minute, specifically to James' brother. Because he says to all the apostles, so that would include the other Jameses, to James and then to all the apostles. Why? Why did he appear to his brother? Because there was, there was a plan for his brother James. He's more than just the half-brother of Jesus, though he was that. He is the one who will lead the Jerusalem church. When you read the book of Acts, this James who writes this book is the leader. I think it's safe to say he's the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Yeah. He's the pastor. It's interesting, Acts 15, the Jerusalem council takes place. You remember they're, they're arguing about whether or not the Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved. Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the dietary laws? Do they have to keep all those things? And so Paul comes back to Jerusalem with, a, with an account of what's been going on in the Gentile world. This is a scene in heaven I would love to see. Because they're all gathered, and Peter's there, and as many of the apostles that are left are there, and, and Paul is there, and they begin to discuss this. Should they keep the Old Testament law, and, 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 or, or are they saved by grace? And what's interesting is in, in Acts 15, Paul speaks, and then Peter speaks. And Peter reminds them that, that he used Peter to bring the gospel to Cornelius and the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit fell down on them. But then we find in Acts 15 verse 13 that James speaks. Not James, the brother of Zebedee. He's already dead. This James, James, the brother of Jesus speaks. He said, well, what's the, what's the significance of that? Almost always the leader speaks last. And so you've got these personalities. You've got Paul, and you've got Peter, and you've got all these elders and apostles gathered, and it is James who wraps it all up. The reason is he's the pastor of the church. When the apostle Paul got saved, 
We saw this in, in Romans 1 this past week. And just remind you real quick, Wednesday night's teaching through Romans 1, we're moving into the sanctuary, okay? So I told you we might move it to the fellowship hall. We had a few that had a hard time getting up to that room, and, so, and, and we ran out of space. So we're going to be here on Wednesday nights and, and looking. But we saw this. Um, when Paul got saved, he spent three years in the wilderness, most believe he was taught by Jesus during that time, that Jesus taught him through his spirit. But, but he did go to Jerusalem, and he records it in Galatians. In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he said he visited Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Can you imagine all the stories that Peter told him and taught him as Paul was trying to put it all together? And then he said, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so we find here early on that James is considered one of the apostles. He's not one of the 12, but he's considered to be an apostle of the church. He's, he's a pastor of the church. And remember that when we go back to verse 1 in the moment. The writer of the book is the brother of Jesus. Saved through the resurrection of Jesus and the death of Jesus and resurrection just like we are. His, his being the brother of Jesus didn't save him. He had to be born again as we do. And he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Well, when did he write it? That's the second question. And the rest of them won't be as long as the first question. When did he write it? Well, notice verse 1. We get a clue here. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at who he writes to. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. The 12 tribes in the dispersion. So... We know from James's book he's writing to Christians, and we know from the introduction that he's writing to Jewish Christians. When were they dispersed? It's interesting, he quotes the Old Testament four times directly, and then gives over 40 allusions to the Old Testament in this short letter. Over 40 times he alludes to the Old Testament. Writing to the Jews who were saved, there's no mention of the Jerusalem Council. So it means that sometime before Acts chapter 15, there's no mention of it because he talks about some things. He could have said, you remember what we decided, but he doesn't do that. It's, a, it's an early book. It's an early book in the New Testament. I want to suggest to you, it's the first book written in the New Testament. The first, now not chronologically, Matthew, the Gospel of John's first chronologically. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's first, but, but as far as books written, James is the earliest. He, he wrote it somewhere between 44 and 49 A.D., most likely 44 or 45 A.D. So get this. He's writing a book to Jewish Christians trying to figure out how to live the Christian life 15 years after the resurrection. That's how close it is. 15 years. They're trying to figure out how to live this life that you and I are still trying to figure out. Why did he write it? Third question, why did he write it? There are 108 verses in this short book. Of those 108 verses, there are 54 commands. 54 imperatives in the Greek language. 54 commands. You think about Paul. Paul begins the book of Romans and, and almost all the way through, it's theology, theology, theology. And then he breaks out into practice. You find that in almost every one of his books. The first half, at least the first half, sometimes more than the first half of Paul's books are the, the theological matters, and then he gets into how you live it out. James deals with theological matters, but the entire book is practical. He jumps right in with both feet. It's practical. He gives us, I mean, in verse 2 is the first command. Count it all joy. He gives us command after command. What did he write? What did he write? Well, it's going to take us months to, unwork the, or un, to work through that. But let me just say to you, it's about faith and how it's lived out. It's what this book is about. Faith and how it's lived out. R. Kent Hughes, he, he says the theme of, of the book is faith that works. I like that. Faith that works. But we're going to look at it as, as the theme for this entire time 
We're going to look at it as living faith. How is it lived out in our life? Living faith. It all reaches, James, all reaches a climax in chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He, he writes this book to show us how to live it out. Now, I will tell you, as we try to unpack it, that it did cause some people trouble, the book of James. Martin Luther, never one to hold back what he thought, called the book of James the epistle of straw. He didn't want it in the New Testament. The epistle of straw. And the reason was Luther came from a works mentality and found out that he was saved by grace. And he was so strong and saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that when he read James, it seemed like James was going against that. We're going to explain that in a minute. But, but for a Sam Mountain boy to say Martin Luther's wrong, he's wrong in that. It's not an epistle of straw. James and Paul do not go against each other. You've heard this before. They're not fighting each other. They're fighting a common enemy. But what they're doing is, is they're standing back to back. And they're facing different enemies. Paul was fighting people who, who say that, that, that you just need faith and works don't matter. And, and Paul has to turn around and show them that, that works matter. And James is fighting those who say, you're not saved without works. James tells us we know it by its fruit. Faith that saves us is a faith that is alive. I got that just the opposite. Paul was fighting people who say you got to work to be saved. James was fighting people who say, no, you don't have to have works. Okay. He's going to show us that faith is shown by fruit. So once again, we'll see this, especially when we come through the latter chapters, that Paul and James are not fighting each other. They're standing back to back, facing a common enemy who are taking it at a different rate. It's living faith. And then one more thing. Where did James write this letter? The only answer I can give you is it had to be from Jerusalem because it doesn't seem that James left Jerusalem. He dies in Jerusalem. And so James and some of the apostles stay after the church was scattered through persecution. Isn't it interesting that James writes to a church that's scattered, and the one who scatters them is the apostle Paul when he was Saul, persecuting the church. And they drove out, and as they went out, they preached everywhere they went. It would seem that the Jewish Christians went all over their known world preaching the gospel, some through Samaria and Judea, and they began to live out what Jesus commanded them to do in the Great Commission, took persecution to get them out. He writes it to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, those ones scattered in Acts chapter 8. Now, there is a great dispersion, obviously, in the Old Testament with Assyria and Babylon, but James is not writing to those Jewish people. He's writing to Christian Jews who were scattered in persecution. Those saved at Pentecost, those saved after Pentecost in the early chapters of the book of Acts, who grew and saw the mighty works of the apostles. He saw those things, and, and then they were scattered through persecution. And, and so that's a word about the letter. Who wrote it? James, the brother of Jesus. Why did he, when did he write it? Early 40s. And then we can go on and see that, that he wrote it as a letter of practice, a letter of obedience. And then the second thing I want us to look at is a word about James's introduction. Let's just dig into that one little verse. Look at it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a note of humility here. A note of humility. James a servant. Paul used the same word in, in, in Romans chapter 1. We saw it Wednesday night. James, a doulos, a slave. Paul, a slave. What's interesting is, is Paul often introduced himself as a slave, but also as an apostle. But there are two in the Bible that seem to introduce themselves 
with, with being just slaves. And what's interesting about that is that both of them are his brothers, James and Jude. The word doulos speaks of total allegiance to the master. Remember who he is, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus writing to the church in Jerusalem and the church that, or he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem writing to the Christians who have been spread out. If you were writing this letter, how would you have introduced yourself? James, the brother of Jesus, our Lord, the one who shared the same womb with the mother of our Lord, James, the pastor, the elder, the apostle of the apostles' church. We could introduce it that way, couldn't we? We could, we could pour it on about all of our qualifications, but, but he doesn't do that. Jude, Jude just says, I'm a servant. He, he doesn't try to pull rank relationally. He comes to them spiritually. James, James, the servant of our Lord. It's, it's great proof of his divinity. The divinity of Jesus. You see it a little bit in, in, his, um, in his, his title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is the title that he receives. He's the name above every name. Jesus is his name. It means Savior. And then he's the Christ. That's not his last name. That's a title for him. He's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but there's a hint here of divinity. How many brothers would call their brother Lord? You ever thought about that? He grew up in the same house as Jesus did. He sat and ate with Jesus. Most likely slept in the same bed as a boy with Jesus. It's doubtful they all had their own beds in their own rooms as a pork carpenter. He knew Jesus as well as anybody in his first 30 years. And he calls himself a slave of Jesus. He refers to Jesus as Lord. I'm going to tell you, if, if nothing else points to the divinity of Jesus, let two half-brothers, James and Jude, call themselves a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that be a hint enough that Jesus was more than just a man. The resurrection changed everything. There's no way that James would have called Jesus Lord Growing up, we've said this many times. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? I know I've said this a couple times recently, but Mary, I mean, why can't you be more like Jesus? Can you imagine that? Living up to that? He calls him Lord. He says, I'm a slave. There's a hint of his divinity. It's probably more than a hint. It's a shout. Of his divinity. We see a word about the early church's theology here. A word about their theology. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang Trinitarian hymn today. Two of them. He, he puts the emphasis on the Godhead. Admittedly, the Spirit is not mentioned here at this time. But already, just 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, they're already Trinitarian. They're already speaking of God the Father, and they're speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is God the Son. Already, they're, they're speaking of Him. And, 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 and we know from other verses, they spoke of the Godhead as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just 15 years. Now, it took the church 100 or so years to work all this out in their creeds and their theology. But, but the early church understood who Jesus was. Everything he will say in this letter comes under the idea that, that we, like James, are simple servants of God. We, we don't set the agenda. I know, we're Baptists. We, we vote on everything. But, but we don't vote on the agenda of what God has set. We don't set the agenda. We don't dictate the rules. We don't choose the circumstances.
We simply follow him as Lord. He's Lord. He's God. As we will see why Jesus' name is only mentioned twice in this letter. By name, it's chapter 1 we just saw in verse 1 and also chapter 2 verse 1. The teaching of Jesus will saturate this entire letter. Especially the Sermon on the Mount. John MacArthur finds 21 references to the Sermon on the Mount in this text. These texts. Think about that. Just 108 verses, almost 20% of what James will say to us comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's saturated with the teachings of Jesus. He writes to a people who are scattered by persecution. Make no mistake, church. Persecution in our country is coming. It's already here, but it's coming. Stand for the biblical principles of God's word, and you will be persecuted in the days to come. There will come a day when it will cost you promotions and political alliances and jobs if you belong to a church that believes what we believe about marriage, about sexuality, about Jesus being the only way to get to God. Jesus is, James is writing to a group of people who are persecuted and they're scattered by it. A people who are following Jesus and by following Jesus lost their earthly identity. They, in some cases, it seems now, have lost their earthly homes and certainly their earthly wealth. They're scattered throughout the world. There are many cases where they're homeless and disenfranchised. James writes to encourage them. I wonder if we could just take for a moment um, just a moment to, to close by looking at, at how James lived out what he wrote. There are two things that I would say to you about this humble servant of Jesus. The first thing is, is he lived. He lived for Jesus. He lived for Jesus. In Jerusalem, even by non-Christian historians, okay, Men like Josephus and other non-Christian historians who write about the church and Jesus' followers, when they write about James, even the non-Christian historians call James, James the just or James the righteous. He was known in the early history books outside of the Bible as James the just, James the righteous. He lived for Jesus. He spent, according to many writings, so much time in the temple praying that they called him camel knees. The reason is he spent so much time kneeling that the calluses grew that big. When I read that, I thought, I've shared with him before, dad knows him, Brother Hall, little old man, he was a godly saint. He went to China as a missionary. He, he wasn't even sent. He just found out. He was at New Orleans Seminary and found out a need. There was a place there with Chinese mission there that before the revolution that didn't have a male pastor there, didn't have a man to, to help. And so he, he sold everything he had after finishing seminary, got on the ship and went to China. Didn't speak the word of the language. Within, I think it was less than a year, he preached in Mandarin. Brilliant man. Some of you in WMU, Rosalie Hunt, it's her father. Brother Hunt goes to a doctor in Boaz. And they said, Brother Hunt, Brother Hall, excuse me, Brother Hall, what's wrong with your knees? He calluses all over. Because he prayed for hundreds by name every day. I was one of those. I'll always be grateful to that man. James was that way. Camel knees. How'd you like that nickname? James the Just. He lived for Jesus, but I would say to you, secondly and, and finally, he died for Jesus. Now, we don't have a record of his death in the Bible. 
But there, there are historians who talk about it. Josephus, again, a well-known historian, says that he was given over to be stoned to death in 62 AD. Um, there's a little book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that early on tried to dis- understand how those that we see in the Bible died, and, and he gives us a little bit more detail about how James died. Again, it's not in the Bible. It's an early account, and many would believe to be true. Many of the chief men among the priests were coming to Jesus in the early church. We see it in the Gospels that many of the Pharisees were coming, the priests were coming. Men like the apostles Paul came to Jesus as a Pharisee. And so the leaders in the Jewish synagogues, and especially in the temple, were upset by this. So they asked James to restrain the people from believing in Jesus and to help them think correctly about Jesus. Now imagine that. They didn't know their their man. But they saw him coming into the temple, and, and from what we can tell, he kept the dietary laws and practices. And so he comes in the temple, and he prays on a regular basis, and they see him doing that. And so they said, we want you to help us get these people to think correctly about Jesus. So a couple of historians say that during the Passover, when the crowds were large, they took James, scribes and Pharisees, and put them up on the top of the temple. Obviously not the pinnacle, but up on the top. And they had them up there, and, and they called down from the crowd. They called down and said, you just man, James is just, you just man, whom we ought to, all ought to obey, this people's going astray after Jesus, who was crucified. I don't know what they expected James to say. But the historian said, James said, why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of God? He sits on the right hand of the Most High and shall come in the clouds of heaven. At that, many were persuaded, and they saw that they had lost, and someone from the top pushed them off the temple. And he landed on the stone ground, but he did not die. Some of the historians said he immediately, a man who prayed so much that his knees were like camel knees, immediately rolled to his knees and prayed, Oh, Lord God, Father, I beg you to forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just like his brother, his Lord. At that, they began to pick up stones to stone him to death. And one of the priests said, wait, what are you doing? This just man is praying for you. And a man took a club and hit him on the head and killed him. James not only lived for Jesus, he died for Jesus. And he will teach us how we live for Jesus so that when persecution comes, we can stand strong and so that if the moment comes, we can die with our eyes on him and not turn away. Amen? This man we will study was not just a hearer of the word. He was a doer of the word. My prayer for all of us is that we too will become doers of his word. Let's pray together. We're going to sing in just a moment. Our Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Your word is true. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the man, that the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know, Father, that, that your word came down from you It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to go down to that division of bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And so, Lord, we're excited. I know I am of of studying James' life. But I don't just want another notch on my knowledge belt. God, we want to be doers of your word. And, Lord, I believe that means that There are times like this that 
we have to stop and ask, what would you have me do, Lord? What is it that you're calling us to do at this moment? What are you calling us to do right now? We see the world as it changes around us and it concerns us. We see, Lord, as things that we once held true are now mocked and persecuted. I pray, Lord, that we would stand true to your word, that we would stand true to you. I pray, Father, that we would look at these commands and not see them as options, but as things to put into practice by your Holy Spirit. So teach us through the words of your servant. Teach us, Jesus, through the words in these days to come of your little brother who now worships you with all those who have gone on before us. Lord, if there's something we should do publicly today, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to be obedient. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If God's calling you, Tim or I'll be here to meet you and help you. moment and just take time. Um, Phyllis, come on up with me. This is Phyllis Bearden. Um, she's been coming for a while. Matter of fact, she told me this morning she was going to join, and, and I won't mention her name, but she's married to Kevin, and her last name's Darden. She said, you're not a member? And um, we thought, you know, she, most of you probably thought she was. This is Phyllis Bearden. She's coming to join our church. Um, she's coming by, um, coming by statement, but to join our church. And so, if you've not had one of her cakes, you're missing a religious experience. I can tell you that. And, uh, but if you just welcome her, would you let it be known by saying amen? amen. You can be seated here just for a second. And we put you in a hurry-up mode, but come on up here. Um, let me introduce you to Alan and Brenda and John and R Russell. Not Alan. Russell, Brenda, and John. I've been calling her Belinda for the last three weeks. And they're coming to join our church from a sister church in, in our—this last name just left me. 
Beasley. Okay, I should know that because I asked him if he was related to the famous Beasley who played for Auburn. And he said he hoped not. So I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so anyway, they're coming to join our church as well. If you welcome them, would you say praise the Lord? Thank you. And you can be seated just for a second. Um, we're going to let you come by and welcome them. We've had a lot of folks joining our church in the last few um, months, and that's been a good thing. And, and God's doing some things. He's bringing us back. I, I look around and, and know that we went to that one Sunday school hour, and it's helped us become multi-generational in this service again, and, and as well as the second service. And so I just praise the Lord for that. Just encourage you to continue to be a part of small groups in Sunday school. And each of them are already involved in the Sunday school class, and so I hope that you will too. But are you ready to, to close and go on to Sunday school? All right, let's stand together. Um, Tim, if you'll go to the foyer, ushers will be at the door. Men, don't forget about tonight, between 5 and 7 at Petros. We'll have a time of worship and prayer and eating together as fellowship. And then also um, this Wednesday night in here. And um, I want to, Phil and Robert, I know y'all grew all these roses and, and flowers in your yard. Thank you so much. Uh, Michelle and, 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 and Christy probably had nothing to do with them, and, and, um, but beautiful flowers, and you can see what they're, what they're doing. So let's, let's close in prayer. Then you come by and greet um, the Beasleys and, and, and Miss Phyllis. Let's, Lord, we thank you for when those who call by you to come and join our church, we give you praise for that. And we just ask God that we would use our gifts to help them grow as disciples. And God, you would use their gifts to help us grow as disciples. Bless these two families, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come by and greet one another. Hey, John, I'm glad you're here.